Uh, Keep your Bibles open there to Proverbs 22, and we'll stay right in that chapter and work through this portion directly. As has been the case all the way through this series, um, one of the things that you want to uh, avoid is getting caught up in just looking at Proverbs as a, uh, a ton of good advice. That there's more going on in the chapter. And here's one of those places where, in fact, uh, we get a great um, uh, help, an interpretive key, if you will. And we'll look at that in just a minute as we go as we go through this portion. Uh, Most of your Bibles probably have a heading at verse 17 that says something like sayings of the wise. You may have that in your Bible If you've got an ESV like I do, extra special version, uh, it'll say that in yours. But uh, depending on what your translation is, it'll have something similar to that. Um, It it has it in verse um, 20 of mine says, have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge? Uh, Chapter 17 through 21 form a paragraph and it, uh, it has this in it in verse 20. But then when you get to chapter 24 and verse 23, you read another portion which says, These also are the sayings of the wise. So you can see that whatever he started in 2220 has ended. There's another section that comes in between. And this is what most commentators, virtually all commentators, agree. These 30 sayings of the wise fall in between those those two portions. So uh, this isn't anything that's new to anybody. If you're reading through uh, Proverbs, especially consistently, you've run on this and you've figured that out for yourself. But that said, uh, we have both in the beginning of this, as I mentioned, in verses 17 through 21, we've got a great introduction in that paragraph. We have an introduction that, that tells us how to, how to jump into these 30 sayings, and a really, really interesting interpretive key. How am I supposed to think about these 30 sayings? And so in 17 through 21, we want to look at that first and unpack the introduction, and then we'll go back and we'll begin to look at some of these 30 sayings. And this introduction, in fact, contains the first of the 30 sayings. So it makes it a nice, neat unit. It's easy to get through. Uh, And before we even jump into that, uh, let's just have another word of prayer, if that's okay with you. I want to just quiet our hearts before the Lord for a a moment before we get there. Heavenly Father, again, it's so easy for us to just um, run from one thing to the next and not pause and put everything else out of our hearts and out of our minds and focus on what it is we're about to do and let our hearts hear you speak through your word. Your spirit moved upon Solomon to see to it that these words were written and then you moved upon men throughout century after century to see to it that they were preserved for us and translated for us and then brought to us at this very moment 
so we want to approach them with the care and consideration that all of that requires to not take them lightly or carelessly but to really let our hearts and minds drink them in for what they are your words to us so speak to us this morning and show us Christ we need him so desperately we pray in his name Amen. So we have here this first saying. It comes to us in verse 17. The first thing that he wants to help his son understand, and as all the way through the book of Proverbs, you've got a father talking to his son, trying to give him those things that are just vitally important for his soul, and especially as he's looking forward to the day when he will become a leader in Israel, possibly taking the throne. Solomon had a number of sons. Which son in particular he's talking to here, or whether he's got a number of his sons around him, we don't know, but, but that's the, the context of what's going on here. And so the first thing he says to him is, incline your ear, And hear the words of the wise. Pay attention to the things that are said from those who are wise. And apply your heart to my knowledge. Now he's he's giving him three things here. He isn't just multiplying words for the sake of multiplying them. If you were to hear them in the Hebrew, they they would have a little more impact than they do in the English for that first word, incline your ears, is giving him the idea, and in fact it would be used in a situation if, if someone was whispering very carefully and, and you had to bend low. It has in it that concept of bending low to hear. I really want to hear this. And so he's saying, incline your ear. Don't, don't just hear this like it's playing in the background. Take, take a moment. To really listen to what's being said. Bend your ear low and listen to this carefully. Incline your ear. Give yourself over to pondering and considering wise things. Because they're not a matter of mere osmosis. You know, we come and we spend uh, an hour here together in the in the preaching of the word, the, uh, the unfolding of the word, maybe another hour on Wednesday night. And that's not enough to offset everything else we're listening to throughout the week. So hopefully you're taking time during the week to listen to the Word of God on your own. A a lot of time to offset all the other things that you're listening to. Some of it that you have to listen to. But it doesn't just float in your ear and then suddenly take root. Uh, Any of you that have been through school, I would assume most of you have. Some of you still have to come up through some schooling. Those of you that are young here still have a lot of schooling to go through, whether that be in home or in some other context. But you know the difference between just hearing things in conversation and really getting down to, boy, I've got to listen to this in a lecture or in some other context. I've really got to take it in. And that's this, this idea here. We can't get some things by just passing 
acquaintance with them. We need to think deeply on them and, and to think repeatedly on them and to reflect on them, to mull them over, to meditate. I'm sure many of you have heard in, that in the Old Testament, that word meditate carries with it the idea of a cow chewing the cud, to ruminate on it, to chew on it and chew on it and chew on it until you, you really get everything out of it that you possibly can. And in our day and age, everything is done in sound bites. Even the news, they're talking about great things of geopolitical importance that have to do with, with the, this nation and other nations, and it's done in two-second sound bites. You hear this little tiny fragment as though that's the whole of the truth, and of course that's ludicrous. Nothing truly important comes that way. But that's, that's the nation in which, that's the age in which we live And that's why God is so faithful to have written these things down for us and not just transmitted them verbally so that we can go back and read it over and over and pull it apart. Uh, This past week, I had the pleasure of running back out to um, last Sunday, right after the church service, I ran to Toledo, Ohio to be part of a uh, fire conference. For those of you who don't know, while we're an independent church, we're part of a network of churches called FIRE. It's the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelical Churches. A bunch of churches that are like ourselves. And they had their Midwest conference last week. I was out in Toledo for that. And one of the members of FIRE there, and they're all churches about our size, or most of them a little smaller actually, but all holding to the solas of the Reformation, um, sola scriptura, that scripture is our ultimate authority. No human synod or group, but scripture is the ultimate authority, and it's in the scripture alone that we understand that you come to salvation by grace alone, uh, and not as a result of merit through faith alone, not as a result of works because of Christ's work alone, not because of ourselves to the glory of God alone, uh, sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, uh, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. That's kind of those watchwords of the Reformation. And and as we were there, one of the guys who is uh, was an original member, uh, he teaches biblical intensives, and he'll sit down with a group of guys with nothing but a Bible text, and they will read the same chapter over fifteen or twenty or thirty times. And just sit down and, and make notes on that one chapter. And say, what are, you, what, are you, what are you reading here? What are you reading here? Take it apart, take it apart, take it apart. Until they soak in it for three, four, five days. Because you can't understand what's there by just glossing over it quickly. It takes time. You've got to sit there and really work through it and work through it. And that's, that's the idea that's going on here. Exactly that. Uh, Biblical truth can't be had there. So incline your ear, bend low to hearing the words of wisdom. Get close to really hear. But then he emphasizes the second word. After incline, it's hear it. I mean, take it in and hear it accurately and carefully and and pay enough attention to really get it. Uh, My mom used to say about my dad that he had selective hearing. He could always hear her when she said, dinner's ready. But when she said the garbage needs to be taken out, he could never hear that. It was like he was deaf. And, of course, that was true with us. We could hear her when she said dinner's ready. We could not hear her when she said, you need to clean your room. 
there's, there's somehow that there was a filter and it just wasn't there. And so he's saying that you can have that filter on your ears and you need to be careful not to have that filter on your ears. Hear the words of the wise. Don't just listen to them and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. Take it in so that you really get it and get it accurately. I was reading a book last night just before I went to bed and uh, the individual was trying to mark out the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Unfortunately, he didn't understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is going to be fun. I'm going to be in a, uh, in a study with a bunch of pastors later this week and we're going to be covering this portion of this book and I'm going to have to show them because he was saying, here's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and the New Testament Testament says, but it's mercy and grace. He has no idea what the, the phrase in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, means. He thinks it means meanness. He doesn't realize that the context of, in which that is said is God saying, you can't extract more than a tooth for a tooth. You have to be just in carrying out things. You can't get a pound of flesh for a hangnail. God is saying, you have to make sure that you can't. You can't sue McDonald's for a million dollars because you were stupid enough to burn yourself with hot coffee. Is the idea. It's not saying you have the right to go out and gouge somebody's eye out. But you see, he didn't understand the text because he never read the context. And this is exactly what's going on in this passage. He's saying, you have to be careful. You've got to really hear what's going on. But even then, there's a third stage to it. You've got to... Apply it. And that's a word in the Hebrew that means to set it in place, to give it its proper place in your paradigm, in how you think, in how you understand the world, in your worldview. Give it a place in you to remain and to dwell so that it forms a lens through which you understand truth. Appoint it its proper place in your thinking. Now, Solomon then goes on to say, after he gives you this initial verse, this initial first saying, he then goes on to say, now that's going to yield up three great results, which he gives you in the following three verses, in 18, 19, and 20 through 21. So in 18, he says, now let me tell you what this will do. First, it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, it will be pleasurable for you. It'll be pleasant. It'll actually have a pleasurable result in you. Why would it be pleasurable? Because as we'll see, especially as we work through these first four or five things together, you're going to find out it'll keep you from panicking in the world around you. It'll keep things in perspective. Yeah, we're, we're in a time when we're looking at what's going on with ISIS around us. I got to tell you, you know, uh, President Obama's taken a lot of, of heat for saying that ISIS is JV. <clears throat> Compared to the Assyrians, when Jonah was supposed to go preach to them, they are JV. The Assyrians were far more brutal than ISIS ever thinks of being. And how was he supposed to go preach to them? These terrible people. It would be like Foley's parents going to preach to, to Jihad John now. It would be a pretty tough spot. So I'd be a lot like Jonah. I'd be, I'd be booking passage on a ship to Spain too, rather than going to Nineveh. 
So how do you keep your heart steady under those conditions? How do we keep our hearts steady in this day and age? How do we remain in, in a good place? We were at this conference and I was, I was showing the guys, we were talking about having a, a good Bible study software and they were having a, a representative there to show us how to use Logos Bible software. And Logos Bible software, unfortunately, is rather expensive. I was telling them if they couldn't afford that, I have a great piece of software. It's an app I have on my iPhone, which I won't show you right now. Yes, Scott, I, iPhone, I, you converted me. I left my Android behind. Um, and, uh, but on it, I have a, a great little app called Preach It with a B3. Those of you know what a Hammond B3 is. It's preset phrases. And what it is is uh, if, uh, it's, it's time to get your amen on it. And you can press it, and it's just a little riff on a Hammond B3, like you're in a church. It plays out loud. It's great. And, uh, but I only use it in certain churches. And uh, one of these days I'll use it here. But, uh, I'm showing so anyway, we were, we were laughing. We were having a good time. We were laughing out loud and, and carrying on a little bit. And, and we talked about that later. And the truth is, Christians are the only people who not only have the right, but have the privilege of really laughing in this present age. We can laugh in the midst of all of it because we know who our God is. We know what the end of all of this is. We know where we're going. We know our security. It is pleasurable and pleasant to the soul when you can see the world through the wisdom of God's word. Even in the most tragic of circumstances. As a matter of fact, this is a great example of this. And we won't turn there just for time's sake. This statement that he uses, if all of them are ready on your lips, there is a tremendous example of this in the book of Jonah itself. You, you recall, those of you who know the story of Jonah, here's this very reluctant prophet of God. He is called upon by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, as we said, are this very brutal, brutal people who are going to wage war against uh, the nation of Israel and they, they were the terrorists of their day. Um, the, the, the Bas reliefs on their own uh, walls and things show how they would stack up the heads of their enemies on pikes uh, 15 high, and they would make totems out of the heads of their enemies and uh, things of that nature. And they would do this simply to terrify other people who would oppose them. And so he's going to go and tell these people, repent because God's going to judge you. Yeah. And uh, real smart move. So he runs in the other direction naturally. And, and God prepares a great fish for him and he's swallowed by this fish. And there's a chapter that records his prayer while he's in the belly of this fish. Now, I would imagine that when you're running from God and you're in the sea and there's a terrible storm and the men know they have to throw you overboard in order, over, order to save their lives and you're now swallowed by a giant fish and you're in the belly of this fish, your prayer life is probably not like really composed. You don't like think about these and thous and saying things in nice, neat phrases, Right? And in fact, his prayer life isn't that way either. If you read the prayer very carefully, it's almost completely comprised of verses from other parts of the Bible. Because it's stuff that he knew. What comes out of him isn't a real deep thought process. It's just scripture that was already in his heart and it could be ready on his lips. When you're in tragedy, when your mind can't put the thoughts together, 
but you're full of God's Word so that it can flow out of you. That's what he's talking about. That's why they used to say about the Puritans that when you, when you pricked them, they bled Bible. It was just part of their thought process. They had taken it in for so long. So he says this is the first great benefit if you'll really listen and hear and apply. It'll be pleasant and and you'll keep them with you if all of them are ready on your lips. And and secondly, that you may that your trust may be in the Lord. I've made them known to you today, even to you. We're going to come back to that one in just a second. Whatever else he may have in mind, Solomon is vitally interested that his son's trust will be in the Lord and not in earthly wisdom or earthly things. And then thirdly. Have I not written for your, for your 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? It'll provide the rationale for those who ask you why you make the choices you make and live the life you do. It'll form the reasons, the motivations behind your own lifestyle and the choices. It'll, it'll make sense out of life itself. And you can't help but call to mind a passage out of the New Testament when you read that, can you? Like 1 Peter 3, where he writes, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed and, and have no fear of your persecutors or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's the same concept that comes out there. Now, while two of those are clear benefits, that first one and the third one, in a more generic sense, it's this second one that I want to camp on because this is what forms the interpretive key for what we're going to look at today. It's this one that stands out. He says, I want you to listen and hear and apply because I want your trust to be in the Lord. And this is why I'm making these made known to you. So when you read all of these, when you're examining these sayings, these 30 sayings, what he's asking you to do is to stop and consider what each one of these sayings might be communicating to you that sheds light on the Lord himself and contributes to your trusting in him. Now that's going to take a little bit of work. Because on the surface, they don't appear to have that kind of reference. You're going to have to do the, the work to get to it. I need to read them with that thought in mind or I'm going to miss their import. And he's telling you that is the reason why he's written them. So I've got to figure out what that looks like or I'm not getting to the pur purpose of the passage. It's the responsibility of the reader to think on them in such a way, waiting on the Holy Spirit and and working through the rest of the Word of God to arrive at concepts that accord with explicating facets of God's excellencies, I think, in very creative and, and memorable ways. And this is just one of the ways in which the genius and the creativity of the Holy Spirit come out in Scripture. Um, how it, it, it comes alive. He couches truths about the wonders of God in forms that on the surface don't appear to be theological and doctrinal, 
but nevertheless make it theological and doctrinal and make those truths more memorable. Um, Y'all know the word. You know what it is to have a, a, a mnemonic device? A way of memorizing something by thinking about something else? When, when we lived in, well, my dad still has that phone number. Uh, in, in, uh, I'm dating myself here. Some of you kids, you know phone numbers now are all just numbers. But when I was a kid, our phone number was CH244277. CH stood for chapel. That was the exchange. And then they, changed, they took all those away. And now it's, and my, my best friend's number was GR35329, something like that. So it was, it was Granger was, was the exchange. They took all that away, and now it's just 2444277. That's my dad's number. But we couldn't remember that. So dad got playing around with how they have the numbers on the dials, and he just figured it out. If you spell out big harp, you'll dial the number. Now that I could remember. I, I could remember big harp. It's, it's better than 4444444, better than, than William Matar. So, but that's a mnemonic device. It's a way of memorizing something or remembering something by thinking about something else. And the Spirit does this throughout the Scripture. The the Bible's replete with those kinds of devices, helping you memorize things. One very pronounced uh, place where this happens, and I've shared this with you before. I'm going to show it to you just one more time for the the sake of, uh, because I needed to fill up space on my notes, um, is the book of Lamentations. And, And you'll just take this away with you. You'll recall that Lamentations is set up in a very unique way. Um, in a unique way. You can't have very unique. You either have unique or, or very special. It's, unique means one of a kind. I shouldn't say very unique. Um, Lamentations has five chapters. Uh, and chapter one, so I'm trying to get my red dot here, uh, is set up. So verse one, one and I'm, I'm doing this with the American alphabet, not the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter one has 22 verses. Two has 22 verses. Three has 66 verses. Four has 22 verses and five has 22 verses. And it's set up like an acrostic. It's done in alphabetical order. So verse 1 starts with A, verse 2 with B, verse 3 with C, verse 4 would be D, E, F, G, all the way through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This was so they could memorize it easily. It was written while they were in captivity. Now chapter 3, which is the center chapter, the first three verses start with A, and then the second three verses with B, and the third three verses with C, and so on through all 66 verses. Chapter 5 doesn't follow the acrostic pattern um, precisely, and nobody's sure exactly why, but these chapters follow that acrostic pattern perfectly. And there's other passages in Scripture that use these acrostic patterns, and they're just done so that you can memorize the passages easily. Now, it doesn't come across in English very well, so we don't have it quite the same, but the Holy Spirit has done this over and over and over for the purpose of being able to memorize portions very well. In this case, in Proverbs, he's doing it by way of similes, giving you a concept that corresponds to a doctrinal thought in a different way, so stick in your head in a different way. It's exactly what's happening. So Solomon's already told us, I've given you these 30 sayings so that your trust may be in the Lord. I want you to think about that. So don't just think about the practical side of the, of the, the example I'm going to give you. 
Think about how this relates to something about the Lord and why you would trust in Him more. That's, that's where He's drawing you to, and that's what we do. And that then starts to come alive in the second saying. Now, I'm going to work through these, and you're going to scratch your head and say, Are you sure? And then I'm going to go back and show you seven other places where the word order that I'm suggesting to you comes out in Scripture so that I can, I can show you that I'm not just pulling this out of my hat. Um, so we'll, we'll demonstrate that for you in just a second. So that moves us to the second saying, which is in verses 22 and 23. And here's what he writes. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. Or crush the afflicted at the gate. Why? For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So what does this tell us about God that we may trust in Him? It's an interesting thought. And this, this idea of dealing well with the poor while they're in their poverty... There's a number of places we could go back to, especially in Leviticus. I'm not going to do that right now. But I'm going to suggest to you that the key concept here is that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. He is merciful to those who are in difficult circumstances. And He calls upon us to be merciful to those who are in difficult circumstances, and never take advantage of those who are in difficult circumstances just because we can. Contrary to the way our society takes advantage of those in difficult circumstances and literally makes slaves out of them in a regressive system that we have. Because mercy isn't simply one of God's attributes. It's something He delights in. Something that that pleases Him. We might even say it, it tickles him. This is a little different than, than pleases him in the same way that, um, that, that mere obedience does. It's something that, that he enjoys. You remember in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus, um, it, it's, the, it's the portion of Scripture where Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. Jesus finds Matthew taking receipt at, uh, at the tax booth, and he says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, it says that, that many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, Well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says, listen, what I want you to do is go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What's he saying to a group of very pious and religious people? You know how to obey me in the sacrifices, but I tell you, mercy pleases me more. Astounding. These people need something from me. And you think you can just serve me. 
There is this drawing out of the heart of God to those who know they have need. And it's amazing, I think, often for Christians after we've become Christ's that somehow then moves us over into a more judgmental framework. We somehow lose the mercy and become more justice-oriented toward those who need mercy when He delights in mercy. Let me go back again and mention Jonah in chapter 4 and verse 9. Now, Jonah wants justice against the Assyrians. He doesn't want mercy. I, I thought of this as I was reading through this passage actually a few weeks ago. It was after I saw the, the second Jihadi John beheading video. And I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder who's praying for his conversion. I prayed for the family of the man who was beheaded. It was too late to pray for the man who was beheaded. But I, I said to myself, I wonder how many people have prayed for the man who is so far gone in his sin and so hard that he thought that this was something righteous to do. And how desperately he needs Christ. And are our hearts so hard that all we want is retribution and justice when he needs forgiveness and grace? And are we there? Am I there? So Jonah had preached and he was upset because the people repented and called upon God. And God said to Jonah, he had left the city and he went out and he sat down under this plant and the plant had given him shade and he was happy that he had shade and then the plant died and, and he was suddenly struck by the sun. And God said to Jonah, do you be, do you do well to be angry for the plant because the plant had died? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor and you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much care. Great, great mercy. That great early church leader, John Chrysostom, 4th century, said nothing so much pleases God as mercy does. He then drew the simile that, of course you know, whenever a king or a priest was put into office, he was anointed with oil. And he said the reason why God anointed them with oil was because oil was always a symbol of applying medicine to the sick. And he said it's a symbol of mercy. And that those in that office would always have mercy. And that this is a symbol of God having mercy on us. That he would give us leaders and that he would give us priests. And that he would be merciful to us. 
think there's a, a genius of, of demonstration here. When Solomon says, don't rob the poor because he's poor. Why? Because God's a God of mercy. How is it that any of you here are born again today? Because God was merciful on your spiritual poverty. Because He loved you in your extreme need. Not because you deserved it, but because He was merciful. And isn't that why He calls us to go and preach the gospel to others? Because they need it too. The third saying comes in 24 and 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. This is my go-to verse for somebody who's dating somebody. I say it for men and I say it for women. If you're dating somebody and you know that one of their primary character traits is that they are given to anger, run like the wind. Don't, if you're not to make friendship with them, you sure shouldn't marry them. You'll, you'll entangle yourself in a snare because it just gets uglier and uglier. It is a problem. But that's a nice practical application. The question is, what does this tell me about God that I might trust in him? <laughs> See, that's, that's the interpretive key that I've got to go back to. If I stop at the surface, I haven't gone to where Solomon wants me to go yet. What do I need to know about God here? That God is a God of great patience and long-suffering. He's not quick-tempered. And if he's not quick-tempered with his enemies, believe me, he's not quick-tempered with his children either. Do you remember his wonderful word to Abraham? How he wouldn't bring the children of Israel into the promised land for another 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete in Genesis 16:15. Imagine that. 400 years of patience with a pagan nation. We're all wanting God to bring down His wrath on America after 200 years. He's so patient. He's so patient. You know how I know he's patient? I'm still alive. <laughs> he's so patient. He's so patient with you. He's so patient with me. When we have so many sins that we still toy with, play with, still fall into, still keep saying, yes, Lord, I'll deal with that. <laughs> he's so patient. And don't we remember how in Romans 2, 4, Paul tells us that it's God's kindness and forbearance and patience that are intended to lead us to repentance, not his anger and his fury and his wrath. The believer is to trust in the amazing long-suffering of our Savior and King. That it is so much his character and nature that he's not only endured the human race in its fallen condition of, for tens of thousands of years, but he makes this trait central to being conformed to his image in Galatians 5. So, so that part of the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering, patience. 
Spiritual growth is not shown in shortness of temper with those who are spiritually immature, but in forbearance and patience and long-suffering. Now again, let me work through these, and then I'm going to come back and show you that this is a, a the, the very pattern that Solomon uses here is a pattern that's established elsewhere in Scripture, even the word order, so that you can see that this is not just willy-nilly, but Solomon's actually taking this from another place in Scripture. And the fourth saying, So be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. Don't be a co-signer, basically the idea. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? I mean, whew. especially don't be a co-signer if you don't have the money. I mean, you know, don't, don't be an idiot. But, okay, that's, that's nice on the surface, but what does this tell me about God that I might trust in Him? That God is a God who is forgiving. And he knows the cost of forgiving. The example is here one of forgiveness that's couched in terms of being responsible for someone else's debt and one that's costly. And note the caution here in regard to us. He's making, he's making his son aware or to beware not to take on burdens that he can't pay for since there are clearly burdens that we have not the means to pay. And one of those is we can't pay for anyone else's sin. We can't stand in anyone else's stead. We don't have that ability. But this he can do. And he does it even, even at the expense of the life of his own son. He knows the true cost of forgiveness. The way that only he can. And it serves us well to consider what it means when he calls us to forgive. Forgiveness is expensive. If it doesn't cost you anything, it isn't real forgiveness. It isn't forgiveness till it really costs. It's not to just brush things off. Nowhere do we need the Spirit's power more. And nowhere do we take on His likeness more than when we're brought face to face with deep painful, costly forgiveness. This is one of those places where we enter into the Savior's place with Him in an an extraordinarily intimate way. And why it's one of the most genuine marks of a true believer. And why why Jesus can teach that an, an unwillingness to forgive calls into question whether or not we really know what it means And what it cost Him to forgive us of our sin. If we can really withhold forgiveness from another. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And then the fifth thing. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. The landmarks were the boundary lines, especially between the tribes of Israel, the land that God had allotted each of them. The boundary lines that set up the the markers, whose land was what. But what does this tell us about the God that we might trust in Him? That God is faithful. That He doesn't change or fail in His promises. That what He 
What he sets, what he ordains, he sets and permanently. And this is both true in, in terms of reward and in punishment. We'll see that in just a minute. He never moves the boundary markers. He doesn't change the rules in the middle of the game. He has never lowered the bar, the standard for righteousness and holiness and acceptance. The, the boundary, the level of acceptance with him is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, his own holiness, which is why we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because nothing less will do. We cannot be holy enough in ourselves to be acceptable. We have to have his righteousness imputed to us. And at the same time, it's why the one trusting in Christ can be absolutely sure of their salvation because he's sworn to us and can't lie. He never moves the boundary marker. And it's why anyone who remains stubbornly in their sin, why anyone who refuses to hear his call to renounce self-government and and ask for forgiveness for refusing him as their Lord and their God, will without question face his just wrath without fail. He does not bend or change the boundaries. If you stay in your sin, you will be judged. If you confess and come to him, you will find forgiveness. Now, as I said, I want to go back and just establish in only two places out of the seven uh, a remarkable connection with these same concepts where they're, they're not only repeated, but they're repeated in almost the same word order as a way of showing you where Solomon would have drawn these concepts and, and as a way of reinforcing these ideas the way he did. Now, are they absolutely verbatim? Not quite, but that's the point. They're shapes and shades. They're reiterations in such a way that they can't be missed all the same. So here we have these, these four concepts that are given to us in the passage. That God is merciful, that he's patient, that he is forgiving, and that he's faithful. That's, that's what's given to us in these four verses by way of an interesting object lesson in each one. Now let me take you to Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. This is where Jonah was praying, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? It's why he's arguing with the Lord, why he didn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, that you are merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The same four ideas, almost in the same word order. He just flips the bottom two. But you see them. They're, they're identical. I'm astounded by that. He, he's picking up the, the, the very same theme. And so you, you put them in order. I, I told you I knew what you're like, God. That you're merciful and you're patient, you're slow to anger, and that you are faithful, except he's transposed these bottom two, and that you're relenting, you're forgiving. And it's interesting that those are the four that he capitalizes on, isn't it? He uses those same. Let me take you to one more. This is one of my favorite passages. It's in Exodus chapter 34. It's the place where, where Moses prayed, Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, well, you know, you can't do that, Moses, or you'll die. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and then I'll pass in front of you, and I'll cover you with my hand, and, and you'll pass, I'll pass by, and you'll see me from behind, and I'll declare myself to you. And then so the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful 
and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And there's your four again, almost again in the same order. Where do you think Solomon got his four ideas? From the revelation of God on Sinai out of Exodus. Same four things. I want you, my son, to understand how God is revealed in these things. And how is he revealed as a God who is merciful and slow to anger, patient and Faithful and forgiving. And then he actually goes on to show how that even occurs in, in that he's faithful both in forgiving and in carrying out his ultimate punishments. Same thing. Now, it gets even better than that. Because if you go to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17, he's going to repeat the same four in the same order. And if you go to Psalm 86, 15, he's going to repeat the same four in the same order. And if you go to Psalm 103, 8, he's going to repeat the same four in the same order. And in Psalm 145, 8, and in Joel 2, 13. Guess what? I think you're supposed to get the same four in the same order. If repetition means anything, it means that Solomon was communicating something and he's communicating to his son and communicating to us some very essential truths that have to form the absolute fabric of our thinking at all times and in all places. And it comes down to this. Listen, 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 listen. Christian, listen, and if you're not a believer today, this is what I want you to know about our God before you get out of here today. I want you to hear, you need, you, you need to hear this. Listen, hear this. Apply this to your heart. Understand this. Drink this in. Your God is merciful. What do we have in the tabernacle? What do we have in the temple? What do we have in the, in the Holy of Holies? What do we have covering the law? What do we have where the angels are over top of the Ark of the Covenant? We don't have the judgment seat. We have the mercy seat. Where is the blood sprinkled once a year? On the mercy seat. Where is the presence of God manifest? At the mercy seat. He is merciful. Your God is merciful. And He is slow to anger. And He is forgiving. And He is faithful to all of His promises. And so Solomon's saying to his son, Now, son... You live in this and you build your life and you build your friendships and you build your relationships around this. This is the words of the wise. These are the first five sayings of the wise. You listen and you hear and you apply to your heart and you live in this context. And nowhere, nowhere is all of this summed up more than in the person and the work of Christ. Wherein God's faithfulness to his promise in the proof of His long-suffering toward us, He at last sent His Son to pay the price for our sin on the cross that we might receive the fullness of His mercy and the forgiveness of sins and be sent into all the world to preach the same 
to every living creature. What a testimony to the merciful, slow to anger, forgiving, and faithful to all of His promises, God. So, as we're reading the rest of Proverbs 22, down into, into chapter 24 and verse 22, what we're going to be looking at all the way through this entire passage is, what does this tell us about our God? And every place, it's going to be telling us something more and more and more wonderful about the goodness of our great God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your loving kindness. And we thank you that you choose to reveal yourself to us in these ways. I'm astounded because you, you, could, you could show us your justice above all things. As we saw last week, how you emphasize your holiness. And yet within your holiness, you, you show us these things. None of them at the expense of the other, but all in perfect balance and perfect harmony and absolute wonder and grace. And yet we, we let go of them. When we sin, when we fail, we don't think of you as merciful. We think of you as harsh and intractable. We don't think of you as slow to anger. We think of you as having a trigger temper and that forgiveness is something that has to be dragged out of you by our penance and that somehow we can sin away your promises no doubt father there are some here who don't know the saving grace of christ yet and and they fear that you won't be merciful that you'll just be angry if they come to you that you'll somehow turn them away that that you're already ready to cast them into hell and that and that you won't forgive because their sin is so grave and so deep and has been so long entrenched that it's beyond your scope. And Father, I pray that you'll pierce their hearts with the truth of the revelation of your goodness today. That you'll open their hearts and minds to see what, what all the rest of us here who know you today know. How good you are. And how you receive all who will come to you. And that you'll rejoice our hearts in the wonder of it. And Father, we thank you for the opening up of your word to us. The reminding of us how all of this is located in Christ. The wonder of his sacrifice on our behalf. We give you thanks and praise in his name. Amen. Let's all stand.
Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.